If this is your first Sunday joining us or your first Sunday on live stream, we as a church read through whole books of the Bible, as you saw today from 1 Timothy 5, and we preach through whole books of the Bible. And this morning we begin a study of Titus. Now, as we begin our study of Titus, let's set something in immovable concrete. There is only one basis upon which we are saved, and that is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. As Paul writes in chapter 3 of this letter, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Scottish pastor Alistair Begg explains this truth powerfully in a portion of a sermon that, I, that I've shared with a few people. In the sermon, Begg is making the point that when we go to enter heaven, if it were the case, as the old scenario goes, that upon your arrival, you're asked about why we should enter in. That if we begin to answer that question in the first person, we've already blown it. Because I. Because I. Because I tried to be a good person. Because I've sought to honor you, Lord. Because I've shared the gospel with many. Because I was faithful to my family. Because I was daily in your word. Because I. Because I. Because I. Rather, Beg says that we need to begin our answer in the third person in reference to Jesus. Because he. Because he died for my sins. Because he shed his blood in my place. Because he was perfect. Because he fulfilled the law. For me. Beg goes on to say that he, he can't wait to meet the thief on the cross because he wants to ask him, so exactly, how did that play out for you? One minute you're cursing this guy out and the next minute, well, you made it. <laughs> he pictures the thief walking up to the gates of heaven and being confronted by an angel who asks him, what are you doing here? To which the thief replies, I don't know. And the angel says, what do you mean you don't know? Have you been baptized? No. What's your doctrine of scripture? Huh? So the angel says, just hold on a second. Let me, let me go get my supervisor. I've not seen this before. So the supervising angel comes up and says, no, there's some confusion here. Are you at least clear on justification by faith alone? And the thief says, I've never heard of it. Imputed righteousness? What? Reformed theology? Uh, I'm guessing no. Well, then the supervisor says, on what basis are you here? 
And the thief replies, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's good enough for me. Welcome. Brothers and sisters, that is the only way that any of us ever gets to heaven. The reason I want to be utterly clear on the fact that we are saved by grace alone, whether or not the thief knew that or not, is because in Titus, Paul presents saving grace, as we shall see, as much more than than just a comfort for us. Now, our passage this morning is, is just chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book of Titus, but, but we'll read the whole opening greeting of verses 1 through 4 for our introduction this morning. So then hear Paul's letter to Titus, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore is the word of Almighty God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior." To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So Lord, would you, would you lead us now? Would you lead us by the power of the Holy Spirit? And would you Bless us with his presence among us. Lord, let not the proclamation of your word be wasted this morning. Rather, Spirit, would you, would you take its truth and apply it to our hearts so that we might glorify Jesus Christ. It's in his name, his blessed name that we pray. Amen. So before we jump into chapter one and verse one, let's do a little bit of an overview just to get our bearings here in Titus. And the reason I think that it it makes sense to preach through Titus coming directly out of the book of Acts is because in large measure, the book of Acts is about the spreading of the word of God and the establishing of the church of God. But once the church is established, it's, it's, it's natural to ask, now what? In other words, to start thinking about some, some practical questions. What does a healthy church look like? Who's supposed to lead? How should a church mainly spend its time from day to day? And which truths are most important to teach? Now, these are all 
questions answered in Paul's letter to Titus. But the assignment that Paul gives Titus here is is more or less a baptism by fire. Right out of the gate, we learn that this situation is not healthy. Chapter 1 and verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, which is, which is an island just south of Greece. It's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, the reason that I say that the situation is not healthy is because this, this phrase, to put what remained in order, is, it's essentially medical terminology. The phrase basically is where we get the word orthopedic. So if you've ever had a, a, a broken bone or a dislocation of some type, our family is prone to knee dislocations, which are painful and not pretty. But if you've ever had one, you understand that in order for the pain to stop, in order for healing to begin, in order for proper growth to happen, the part of your body that is out of joint, it must be set right. What remains must be put in order, to use Paul's language here, so that proper functioning and long-term strength and growth will result. That's the main illustration of the book of Titus. We understand from the rest of chapter 1 that, that there were several things within the church that were out of joint, as it were, in terms of both character and conduct of the people on Crete. For example, there was subordination and deception in verse 10. So much so that there were whole families that were being upset by the false doctrine that was being taught, verse 11. One of their own people described the people of the island as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, verse 12. And Paul in verse 13 essentially says, yep, that's about right. (laughs) Your translation may say this testimony is true, but that's exactly what he's getting at. Spot on. In other words, this was not going to be an easy ministry assignment. Things needed to be put in order so that healing and growth could truly begin. The church needed to be properly aligned so that it could flourish. So what about your church experience over the years? Have there been any things that have been out of joint? Anything that needed to be aligned? Or what about in your life right now? 
Any, any desires of the heart misaligned? One of the ways Luther described sin was as, as good desires bent inward on ourselves. Any, anything need to be straightened out there? Any dislocated behaviors causing, causing pain to you or to someone else in your life? Maybe in your friendships? Or perhaps in your marriage? Or even within our church family? Now, I, I've never experienced an elbow dislocation, but I've seen one up close gruesome do you know that that your sin could be causing dislocation type pain to someone else in your life whether you realize it or not or perhaps do you have any spiritual giftings that you have been given that are atrophying because of lack of of use. If so, they need to be utilized. They need to be exercised. They need to be used in order to become strong again. Remember that one of the main New Testament descriptors of the church is that it is a body. And the body only functions well, it only grows in a healthy way when the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, is working properly, which makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, Ephesians 4 and verse 16. So this main analogy or illustration of Titus is the idea of of orthopedically Setting things right. Until your misaligned heart desires or, or dislocated sin behaviors or, or, or atrophying spiritual muscles, until they're set right again, until they're being exercised or utilized, you and others, including those within our own church body, will be hindered from optimal health, and from maximum growth. So what's that look like? What does it look like for a church to be aligned so that it can flourish? Well, according to Paul's letter to Titus, Step one in chapter one is to establish godly leadership with the appointment of elders, men who are above reproach. Step two in chapter two is to teach sound doctrine and for multi-generational discipleship to be happening. This is how the church should be spending its time, according to the apostle Paul, in addition to teaching in the corporate gathering, older men are to be discipling younger men 
and older women are to be discipling younger women. Paul was so adamant about this that he exhorted Titus in chapter 2 and verse 15 like this. He said, you need to declare these things. You need to exhort and you need to rebuke with all authority. And don't let anyone disregard you, Titus. That's how important this is. Now, in chapter 3, we learn that the gospel should be central in all teaching because it is the source from which all good things flow. Paul wants the church to be devoted to good works, chapter 3 and verse 8, so that it will not be unfruitful, chapter 3 and verse 14, which basically brings us to the end of the letter. The best way to motivate people to do good things is by preaching a glorious gospel that captivates their hearts. One of the most powerful descriptions of the gospel in all of the scriptures is found here in chapter 13. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul writes really long sentences, but he has to, to pack in all that glorious truth. Now, I cannot wait to preach through some of these sections here in Titus over the next few weeks, because there are some exhilarating truths here. For now, let me just say that, that I pray that you can recognize characteristics of our core values as a church here in just these few chapters. I hope you can recognize those as characteristic of us, perhaps minus the description of the Cretans. But our hope and desire and plan and effort is committed towards making these truths a reality in everyday Life as we are led by the Spirit of God for His glory and honor. Now, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul opens this letter with a description that, if you think about it, runs the full gamut of human experience from one end of the continuum to the other. The word for servant really is the word slave, which is perhaps the lowest human experience possible. And Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus 
Christ. And I, I doubt there is a higher designation for a human being not named Jesus anywhere in human history. What is fascinating is that Paul, for him, both of these designations, slave and apostle, are true for him at exactly the same time. This is how he sees himself. Paul views his life as purchased by God and ransomed for God. We know that that's true if we learned anything from the book of Acts. He has been freed from the domain of darkness and Paul has been transferred into the kingdom of the Father's beloved Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul has been freed from the bondage to sin to become a slave of righteousness, Romans 6, 18. Ironically, Paul never truly became free until he became a blood-bought slave of God. And he, that is Paul, was formerly the most infamous persecutor of the church in the history of the world, which is the primary reason that he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. He persecuted the church relentlessly until Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and said to him, this ends now. He turned him in an instant. The most fierce opponent of the church of Jesus Christ became its most ardent supporter and proclaimer in an instant because of the power of Jesus Christ. Ironically, in this highest, most revered, perhaps holiest calling imaginable, apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul has been shown how debased he must become, how much he must suffer for the name of Jesus, Acts 9.16. But praise God that he chooses what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28. Therefore, this, this slave apostle, as he describes himself, is writing to Titus, for the sake of God's elect, and for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So, since we only have one verse, let's spend some time hovering over both of these big ideas. The first big idea is that Paul is writing for the sake of, or for the good of, God's elect. Which begs the question, who are God's elect? Essentially, perhaps most simply, the elect are the chosen people of God. In other words, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, since we have placed our faith in Jesus, we are the chosen people of God as the church, those who have genuinely expressed faith in Christ. So then when we gather together, or when we organize ourselves to reach our community, to serve other people, what is it that makes us distinct? 
What is it that makes us different than just, say, the PTO or, or the Rotary Club who's trying to serve their community also? What's different about us? Recall 1 Peter 2 from our call to worship. The difference is that we know that we are a people chosen by God to be his very own people. The knowledge that we have been called into relationship with God through the redeeming work of his son, the knowledge that we belong to God because of Jesus, that truth goes far deeper than any organizational tactics that we might try to strategize in order to serve our community. That truth goes far deeper than our individual conversion experiences. Our spiritual heritage as the elect, that is, as the chosen people of God, to use language that might be more natural for us to say, is rooted in a plan promised before God created time. Verse 2. That is the plan for God to choose a people for his own possession was promised before the ages began. It was established in the Old Testament It was, we might say, incorporated into the church in the New Testament when we think especially about Jews and Gentiles coming together into one unified group. It is rightly aligned to flourish in our letter to Titus specifically and in other epistles like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, which also address the church. And we as the people of God are continuing to walk in this spiritual legacy 2,000 years later. And for us as a church, nothing has changed. This strategy is our strategy. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, when Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he was using a word that is just rich with significance for the gathered people of God who had been assembling together in the presence of God as far back as Sinai at the base of the mountain. Now, it's so important to understand how deep our spiritual roots go, how how rich our spiritual heritage is because it changes how you think about who we are. It changes what you think about what we are doing, what we are called to do, what our purpose actually is in this world. Now, you might be a a first-generation Christian like me. You're just trying to figure it out. You may have been rescued from spiritual darkness for for centuries of false teaching. Or you may come from a family line of God avoiders, God deniers, or God haters. 
You might come from an earthly group of people that you call family that is so troubled and perverse that it would make the Cretans say, yeah, that's pretty messed up. But if that's true, realize that if God himself has rescued you, if your faith is now in Jesus, then your spiritual heritage is the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. Your spiritual heritage includes God's persevering plan throughout the entire Old Testament. Your spiritual heritage includes the heroic faith of those who have fearlessly proclaimed and remained faithful to the truth of God's word despite the threats of the world. Your spiritual heritage is that the one true and living God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, is the God of your people is the God of our people because this God has become our spiritual father. Now, last week during our communion message, I talked about the Passover when God called his people out out of Egypt and he called his people to himself. In Deuteronomy 7, through the prophet Moses God explains why. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. As a member of the people of God this morning, Let that truth just wash over you. The reason that God chose you is because he loves you. God loves you. And here's our spiritual heritage. And God is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery in Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This is your spiritual heritage. God is not only God, he is our father in heaven. As the elect of God, that is as the chosen and beloved people of God, you are among those upon whom the Lord God, the faithful God, has set his affection forever. That truth changes how you think about everything. Now, this second big idea that our knowledge of the truth, our knowledge of this truth, 
accords with godliness, it's important because it's really the essence of the message of Titus, that our knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Let me, let me just give you a few verses and, and, and you'll see what I mean. In chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says the Cretans profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So in other words, when a verbal profession, when a verbal profession of faith in God fails to yield a a visible expression of faith in God, that's a problem. That's a big time problem. Or chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul exhorts Titus to be a model of good works. In 2.10, even slaves, bondservants, are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. In 2.14, we see that God redeemed a people for himself who are zealous for good works. In 3.1, the people are to be ready for every good work. In 3.8, Titus is to preach the glorious gospel message that has, that has just been outlined here in, in, in 3 that we've read a couple times already this morning. So that those who believed in God, that is, who have knowledge of the truth, chapter 1 and verse 1, that's what we're talking about. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves, you can probably finish the sentence, to good works. And in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, Let our people devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So, what is Paul's concern? What is Paul burdened by here in writing this letter? What's the idea that he is pressing? You, you can see this as easily as I can, right? There is a connection between what we profess to be true about God and the way that we express that faith in action. There should be a connection. If that's misaligned, if that's broken, if that's dislocated, there's a problem. God has commanded us to be holy as he is holy, which is why this becomes a problem. Peter said, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It's our call to worship from this morning. Therefore, a correspondence between our knowledge of God and our godliness, to use, to use the language of verse 1, A correspondence between our knowledge of God and our godliness should be evident. That is, we should be living in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. We're not committing to perfection. We are saying there should be integrity between those two things. Because we are God's people, 
end because we know how we got to be God's people. Jesus Christ, God's beloved son, had to shed his blood for us in order that we could come into relationship with God. We had to have our sins forgiven. We needed to have his righteousness imputed to us so that we could then have fellowship with God, so that we could become the people of God. Because we know God and because we know how we got into relationship with God, that is through saving grace, knowing that our standing before God is not based on our own works done in righteousness, chapter 3 and verse 5, but mercifully based on the righteousness of Jesus himself, it is a tremendous comfort to us. It is a tremendous comfort to us to know that our standing before God does not depend on how we have served Jesus, but ultimately it depends on how Jesus has served us. That knowledge of saving grace is a tremendous comfort to us, and it should be. But I think the main message of Titus is this. Saving grace is not just a comfort, but also a catalyst. The message that we are saved by grace through faith and not dependent on our own works is a message that that does bring us great comfort when we fail, especially when we sin. And when life is really difficult. But the message we will be pressing into over the next several weeks in the book of Titus is that saving grace is more than a comfort for us. It's more than a comfort for us when we do bad works. Because of course we're thankful in those moments that the righteousness of Jesus is our basis for our standing before God. But it's more than a comfort for us when we do bad work. Saving grace is also the main catalyst for our good works. In other words, saving grace is the driver of good works. It is the motivator of good works. Saving grace inspires good works. It fuels our good works. It compels our good works. It even propels our good works. Saving grace frees us and to good works, and it fuels our good works. If that is not true, then something needs to be set in order. Our understanding of saving grace needs to be realigned so that we as individuals and so that we as a church can flourish. I mean, we as the people of God at River Oaks, and if you've been here for any amount of time, you know this is true. We as the people of God at River Oaks, we love to revel in the reality of grace weekly, daily, rejoicing in the good news of the gospel because we know we have no hope without it. We know 
that the only way we get into heaven is because the man on the middle cross said that we could come. We know that our only hope is that that man who is now at the right hand of God, he looks at us, he looks at those at the entrance to the gates of heaven, and he says, yeah, they're with me. He's with me. She belongs to me. That's why we get in. Because he, because he, because he saved us, not because of works done in our righteousness, but because of his great mercy. So, beloved, may our joy in that truth lead us as a church to declare, disciple, to demonstrate the good news of the gospel for the sake of the world so that we might adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. To him be glory and honor and wealth and power and blessing forever and ever and ever. Would you pray with me? Father, How can it be that we are the people of God? Father, I'm not so much overwhelmed that you have called me to proclaim good news, but I'm overwhelmed that I am a Christian at all. You rescued me from centuries and centuries and centuries of false teaching. Praise your name. Praise your name for saving each and every one of us, but we recognize that even as the people of God, that designation is greater than any of our individual conversions. Rather, you have, you have gathered a people for yourself and mobilized a people to reach the world, and, and we get to play a part in that. So would you, would you lead us as your people by the power of your spirit so that we might respond now in joyous praise and so that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in the way that we live out our faith expressed to the world because of what Jesus has done for us. And we ask these things in his blessed name. Amen.